Welcome to Twice Born Podcasts. My name is Mike Bailey. Thank you so much for listening. We'd love to get your feedback, and if you have any questions, please go to twiceborn.net. You can also find us on social media. I hope that you find this podcast helpful and informative. God bless. We're going to be looking through chapter three today, and we're in a series called Renewing Your Mind in 2023. How many of you have been renewing your mind in 2023? Hopefully. And uh, the idea is, is that just like your car or anything in your life, over time, uh, things get, get broken, get dirty, get off track, and, and it's always good to realign those things in a proper way to a proper place. And uh, we believe that God's Word and, and the Holy Spirit allow us to retune our lives or realign our lives in the right direction. We see our country getting off alignment. We see we're basically the opposite of what we were 50 or 60 years ago because we've gotten off alignment. We don't have a, a focus, a point where we say, this is what truth is and this is what helps define who we are. And so we have this great blessing from God, His Word, that helps us to realign our lives. And so we want to renew our minds when we gather. We want to consider who we are, who God is, what he has done, what he has revealed, and what is he expecting of us today. And so we're going to be diving into Romans chapter 3, but the verse that we're using for this whole series is Romans chapter 12, verse 2. Do not conform to this age, because this age is just like sifting sand. It's all over the place. But be transformed by the renewing of your mind. Why would we do that? So that we may discern what is good, pleasing, and perfect will of God. And so I hope your goal, if you're here today, if you, if you know Christ is your Savior, is to live out the will of God, that every day as we pray to him, as he's taught us to pray, that your will would be done on earth as it is in heaven, that your will would guide us. If you're here today and you don't know Christ is your Lord and Savior, I'm so glad you're here. Uh, you get to hear what it means to be a follower of Christ. You get to, to hear and see what a follower of Christ is expected uh, to do and to be. And so uh, whoever you are this morning, God has something to say to us, specifically where we are, and to renew our our minds and to help us uh, to be transformed to be like him, to be like Christ. And today we're going to talk, uh, diving into the issue that probably affects all of us. It's one of the things that I think my mind needs to be renewed on. It's something I've struggled with in my life. It's something that I think is hereditary because it seems to be in my family. Uh, I don't know if your family is like this, but we like to argue. <laughs> Does anybody like to argue? I mean, it's funny because when I talk, my dad and I we're very um, opinionated, and we think we're always right. And I respect, honor my dad. He's usually right, so I'm, I'm going to give him credit on that. But the truth of the matter is when people sometimes hear us talking on the phone, they think there may be tension, but actually that's our love language is, is really uh, discussing things vigorously and uh, talking about different topics. And, and really, he never believes what I say. He says, you have to prove it. I need some proof. I need documentation that your side is true. And so I think that's helpful because it solidifies, uh, it helps you to solidify what you believe, but it can borderline into arguing. And I do think arguing in our culture has become uh, too normal. Would you agree? Argue, especially now that we have all of these devices, we have phones and computers, people are comfortable with arguing and, and, and belittling and undermining and attacking others that they don't even know, that they have no relationship with whatsoever. And so I do think this is an important issue for us to renew our minds on, a topic that I think is very relevant for you and me today. And I can tell you through my life many stories of where I've argued Christianity. 
I've argued origins. I've argued the Bible. I've argued about Jesus. And I look back and I say, what did that arguing get me? Did it help that person get closer to the Lord? Did it open a door? Now, I believe the seed of the gospel can be spread from a donkey, so it can be spread from me even when I do dumb things. But the truth of the matter is I want to be wise and discerning. I want to respect the, the role and responsibility that God places in our lives to be ambassadors, to be uh, those who are giving witness to who he is and what he's done. And so I want to do that appropriately, and I, and I want to make sure that I'm not a, a person that's quick to argue. And it can be easy for me. I'm, I can be there pretty quick. I can find a place at times on, on why I'm right, you're wrong, and that's the end of the, the discussion, correct? And what does James tell us? He says, don't be quick to argue or talk, but be quick to listen and, and slow to anger and quick to mercy and grace. And I think this is a struggle. It's a tension we all have. Um, even if you've been a believer for a long period of your life, um, argumentative attitudes, wanting to argue and be right and to, and to really uh, push people in the wrong direction is something I think we struggle with. I can think of in my high school days when I first really got serious about my faith, uh, when I was 17 or 18 years old, just wanting to force people to believe in Jesus. Why don't you believe? Don't you see it's so clear? It's so obvious. And uh, that didn't help. I had nobody come to Christ that way. Did you know that? Nobody fell in love with Jesus because I beat him up with the Bible. And so uh, it's something we have to reflect on and we have to think about and consider um, what, is God, what is his word to us on this issue and how should we approach it as we live out our faith. And so this morning, the question that I want to ask the Lord to answer for us is how can Christians avoid arguments? How can we avoid arguments? How can we have healthy discussions that lead to a betterment for everyone involved and not a place of arguing or belittling or undermining others. So that's the, that's the goal this morning. My prayer is that God would lead us there. And so before we go to his word, let's precede it with prayer and ask him to guide the conversation. <clears throat> Father God, we thank you for today. We thank you for your love and your grace. We thank you that you are worthy of our praise. Um, thank you, Lord, that you are patient with us and that, Lord, you teach us many lessons through our lives uh, if we're willing to observe and, and, and see your hand working in our lives. Lord, I pray as we talk about this discussion that um, we would be much more in tune with our own lives and what we see in the mirror than others, that we would begin to, to consider who we are and what we do, and Lord, that we would grow and mature and, and, and reflect you well. Lord, I pray that your word would speak to our hearts, it would encourage us and challenge us, and that we would walk away from this place, this building this morning, uh, just more committed to you and more uh, ready to, to, to be a reflection of you to those that we meet. So, Lord, I pray that you'd bless this time, guide this conversation, guide your word as it's uh, being proclaimed, and allow us to understand it and to learn from it. In Jesus' name, amen. Context this morning, uh, if you read through the Bible, you're going to learn that it's divided into Old and New Testament. If you come to our Genesis study, you're going to learn about uh, the flood and Shem, Ham, and Japheth and how all the peoples of the world spread around the world and how the Bible really focuses on the Shemites. And so you may have heard the term anti-Semitic that comes from anti-Shemitic, so the, the Shemite clan, and those are the Jews of today. And as you study God's word, you're going to see that there's a major division between the Jews, Hebrews, historically, and the rest of the world. It's interesting, if you look at a map today, you see Israel, it's smaller than the uh, state of New Jersey, and yet it's in the, the global news regularly. Um, there are countries that border it that openly say, we want to wipe this place off the, the earth. 
Uh, there is hostility that is acceptable towards this one group of people around the world. It's something that in America we've struggled with. It, obviously, it was a struggle in the world wars uh, that we've seen, that Jewish, the Jewish culture and the Jewish people have been at the middle of, of a lot of uh, discussion and adversity and challenge. And so here it's no different in Scripture. We see this division between the Jews and the Gentiles. And what we really see is it's portrayed because the Bible's written mostly from a Jewish perspective. Uh, most of the authors in the Bible were Jewish, and Jesus was Jewish, and God chose the Jewish people to bring his Messiah. And so we get that point of view when we read through his scripture. And the Jews had a very specific view of Gentiles. Uh, it is believed the rabbis would say that God created us Gentiles to be the logs uh, for the fires of hell. <laughs> They did not like us. They thought we were the worst. And I, you know, in some way you can understand. We've been trying to, the group of people have been trying to kill them as long as they've existed. But there's been that division. Um, it was so bad that it, they would say, you know, if you walk through a Gentile's house or through a Gentile uh, part of town, that you should, uh, you should dust off your feet from even having the dust on your feet from the Gentiles was disgusting. If you were to brush up against someone, you should burn those clothes because the Gentile is so uh, full of wickedness and evil and, and against God. And so there's this, there's this really strong division between the Jews and Gentiles as you read through the scriptures. But one of the most radical changes that you see is when Jesus comes on the scene, he says, I'm about to end that. I'm here to bring uh, the salvation to both Jew and Gentile. I'm here to set the captives free that are both Jewish and Gentile, that the world may be saved, that those, anyone who calls on the name of the Lord, that they repent and believe will be saved. And so there's this, this great division between the Jews and the Gentiles, and there was arguments upon arguments. You want to talk about arguing, there was so much arguing throughout all of history, so many books, so many historical events have been based on this sort of division. And so we need to be aware of that. And as we study here in the book of Romans, Paul is bringing this to the surface that both the Jews and the Gentiles have these arguments of why they should not submit to the Lord, why they should not be committed to the church, why they should not be followers of Jesus Christ. They've come up with these arguments, and he's confronting these arguments as uh, an example for us. How should we deal with uh, argumentative people? or arguments that come down our path. Because every single one of us in this room has been placed in a situation where an argument could ensue. There are a lot of those opportunities. Now most of them, it might be about the toothpaste or the toothbrush in the bathroom or uh, something in the house who didn't put the food away or who didn't turn the light off. Those arguments are really easy, but these are spiritual arguments. These are eternal arguments. And so there is depth and there is concern and there is, we, these are things we need to focus on and consider in our lives. And so that picks us up in Romans chapter 3, verse 1. And this is the Jewish type of argument. So what advantage does the Jew have? Or what is benefit of circumcision? Consider it in every way. First, they were entrusted with the very words of God. What then, if someone were unfaithful, will their unfaithful unfaithfulness nullify God's faithfulness? Absolutely not. Let God be true and everyone else a liar. I would say that last sentence is something we need to kind of live our lives by today, right? Let God be true and everyone else a liar, right? If I'm going to build my life on something, I'm going to build it on God and his word. I'm not going to build it on popular opinion. What happens with popular opinion? It shifts so quickly, it's hard to keep up with, right? 
And so I'm going to allow God to be true and everyone else a liar. The argument here is, well, Paul, you're telling us that we should confess and believe in Jesus Christ and that we no longer need to apply these 613 rules to our lives. And we can basically uh, start eating all this food we weren't allowed to eat and wear these clothes we weren't allowed to wear. And all these rules we've been told since we were little children, little children, that they were the most important thing that God is pleased when we obey his law. You're saying that that's not part of what God wants from us now. And their, their final uh, statement came to this. Well, what good is it then to be Jewish? What advantage is there to be Jewish? Why then does it even matter? And Paul's response is, it is an extraordinary advantage. Because God, in all of his justice, in all of his sovereignty, looked at the earth and he chose one group of people. See, people look at the Bible and they say, well, the Old Testament, God seems angry and he seems hostile. Well, there, there was really a reason for God's discipline in the Old Testament. He had to pick a group of people and set them apart from the rest of the world. He had to grip, pick a group of people that would keep his truth, would not deviate from his truth, and would be a place that he then could enter time and history into that people. They had to know who God was. They had to know he was just and holy. They needed to know that, that he was perfect in all his ways. They need to know the absolute difference between man and God and that while we are so far apart when it comes to our holiness compared to God's holiness, he had to demonstrate that by establishing these, these rules that no one could really keep. Because Jesus even says, if you look upon a woman with lust, you've committed adultery. If you hate someone in your heart, you've killed them, you've murdered them. Therefore, you've broken all of the Ten Commandments. And in some way, shape, or form, most of the 613 rules that you've been given, you don't even keep yourself. And so the advantage was is that God chose this group of people for his plan. God chose a specific group of people so that through them, and he said there was nothing special about them. It wasn't as if they were the most beautiful people or they were the tallest people or they were the best at sports, right? He said, no, this is a people I'm going to choose for my glory. I'm going to reveal myself through this people, but I'm going to reveal my holiness to them. I'm going to reveal my absolute uh, authority to them. And so he establishes very strict guidelines. And if you look, there are these laws that he puts into place so that his truth can be revealed to us today. So that we can see that there is a holy and just God who has a holy and just heaven and that he is inviting us in, but we have to deal with our unholiness. And we have to deal with our sinfulness. And so he establishes this relationship. And that covenant is built in circumcision. And so to be part of that, the physical uh, outward demonstration of an inward change was circumcision. Do you realize that uh, Abraham was 90 years old when he was circumcised? That's a tough situation, right? But it was an outward reflection of an inward faith. What do we have today that compares to that? We would call it baptism. We have an outward expression of an inward faith. It's a revelation to the world around us that this is what we believe about our existence. We believe that there's a holy and righteous God. We believe that that God uh, is going to judge sin and that without Christ's blood covering our sin that we will be held guilty. And so here we have the initial covenant of God's holiness through circumcision and he is a chosen people that he's going to bring a chosen person which is himself the Messiah. And that through the people, one day we would all be able to be right with God. And so what is the benefit of being a follower uh, in a Jewish world? Is that you get to know the entire story. You're a part of his entire story. 
And Paul is saying, don't miss out on the fact that, that you get to be a part of God's plan in your life. But don't hold on to, don't hold on to the outward expression as more important than the inward working of God. And that God through time now is revealing more of his story. And so he was telling them, look, look, yes, your history and what God had done was right and just and what he had planned. But now he's come into the second part of his plan, which is to fulfill the covering of all of that sin. And so it is a benefit to be a Jewish person. It is a benefit to know the one true God so that it would lead you to the Messiah. So that when Christ appeared, you would believe, receive, and become part of his family. And so all of this was leading there, and it, it was really the argument of that day and is the argument of today. I've been in the Middle East. Um, I know that the major issue there is uh, our history is who we are. Our culture makes us who we are. And you want to undermine that with this new view of Jesus being the Messiah. And this morning, I would say that's an argument that has been going on for 2,000 years since Jesus entered the scene. Is Jesus the Messiah, yes or no? And many Jews have, have gone either way. They've said yes or they've said no. But there is that advantage to know the truth and foundation. Then he goes on in verse 5 and he says, but if our unrighteousness, and this becomes the second argument, so we have a religious argument that shouldn't my baptism, shouldn't my circumcision, shouldn't the fact that I be a Jew make me fine and good? He says, no, that's not what this is. It's bigger than that. And this is the second part of the argument. But if our unrighteousness highlights God's righteousness, what are we to say? I'm using a human argument. Is God unrighteous to inflict wrath? Absolutely not. Otherwise, how will God judge the world? But if by my lie, God's truth abounds in his glory, why am I also being still judged as a sinner? And why not say, just as some people have slanderously claimed, we say, let us do what is evil so that good may come. And here's, what, here's his answer to that argument. Their condemnation is deserved. Let me summarize what they're saying. All right, you're telling us, Paul, that if we receive Christ as our Savior, our sins are covered, uh, and therefore God is made righteous. He's revealed his truth and his love through his sacrifice on the cross. So why not us sin more so that his grace can be more? Why not us sin in even higher levels so his forgiveness can be even greater? And that was their argument. And you know there are there's those today that would make that argument? Why not do whatever I want? God's going to forgive me anyway. Why not just live out however I want to live, and his grace will, will cover my sin, and I'll be fine. And Paul has a stern rebuke to this. And he says, you do not know the truth if that is what you think. Christ did not save us to give us license to sin. If we think that somehow it's more glorious to God to intentionally sin and have him forgive it, then I would sense that's almost blasphemous. God has forgiven us so that we have the capacity to do good, so that now we can actually be holy vessels. Because prior, there is no good in us. There's nothing that would be good that would make us righteous. There's no way I could do a righteous act. Everything I would do would be for whose glory? It would be for my own glory. And because of that, because of that, 
he loses all of, of the, the righteousness that would be given him. And so Paul says, look, their condemnation is deserved because they miss the fact that you are saved unto good works. You are saved unto reflecting God. You've been saved with a purpose. You've not been saved for your own glory. You've not been saved to do what you will. You've been saved to do what God wills for your life. And this is such an important thing for all of us to recognize. That yes, there's benefit in being a Jew in the fact that you know God's initial story. And yes, there's a benefit to having grace that your sins are covered, but it is not so that you can continue to do whatever you want to do. It is so that you can do the good that God wants you to do. And these are the arguments that have, have been passed down through all generations. And in a sense, everyone that you talk to is going to have one of these types of arguments. They're going to say, well, I grew up in the church. I'm a good person. I don't really need to worry about living for Christ or, or giving him my life or submitting to him because I, I know all that stuff in a head knowledge type of way. And they are, they are basing their belief system on a religious order that has been passed down to them. And, and, and Paul would say um, the act of baptism is great, but it doesn't mean anything if your heart wasn't in it. If your soul wasn't committed to the Lord, it was just an outward act of not an inward belief. And the same thing would be true with the Jewish person who was circumcised only on the outside and not on the heart. Because God doesn't necessarily care as much about our outward appearance that what the world sees. He cares about our inward heart and soul and mind. And so he desires for us to be faithful to him in our hearts, in our minds, in our souls, that we would live sacrificial lives, that we would renew our minds, that we can live faithfully to him every single day. I would call this the rebellious argument, right? Let me, let me just do whatever I want because God's going to forgive me anyway. Do you know in many countries and other parts of the world, this is why they condemn Christianity, Many Muslim places would say Christianity is a license to sin. People like Christianity because they can have their affair. They can break the rules. They can steal and just ask God for forgiveness and they'll be fine. And it is a, it is a warping of truth. It is a distortion of truth. It is a manipulation of truth for whose glory and for whose desires and for whose will. Man's will, man's desires, man's lusts. It is using the, the absolute glory of Christ on the cross so, to empower my own sin. Maybe the most heinous act I could commit is to use Christ's death to okay my sin. And so he deals with it, and he says, no, that's not how you are to think or consider because uh, that is so far from reality. Why is that the case? Romans 3.23, as we progress through the chapter, for all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. The religious person who is religious on the outward and has not been redeemed on the inward is still full of sin because their sins have not been dealt with. The person that is rebellious and they're saying, well, God will take care of my sin because he's a loving God and he's a wonderful God, they're still living in their sin. They're choosing to sin willfully. They're saying, I don't care that you died for my sin. I don't care that you hate sin. I don't care that you came to die so that we wouldn't have to deal with sin anymore. I'm still going to love my sin. I'm still going to nurture my sin. I'm still going to grow that sin in my heart and my life. And he says that cannot be. We're all sinners, lost, and we need the grace of Christ. We need the grace to cover that sin. And we need to begin to have the same view of sin that God has. You know, one of the things of becoming a believer is that the Holy Spirit enters you and you begin to see the world the way God sees the world. 
and you begin to have his feelings and emotions, and, and you begin to get angry about injustice, and you begin to love people that maybe you never loved before, and you have compassion and empathy and sorrow, but also you have righteousness and holiness that he builds up within you that they're breaking God's own law. How can they do this and be okay with it? All of these things are a part of recognizing that it is not about my righteousness, but about God's righteousness. We've all sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We're all in the same boat. I'm no closer to God than you are. Because we've all sinned and fallen short of his glory. We are depraved and set apart. This is the purpose of the gospel. This is the reason Christ came to die. God has an answer for this problem, and it's not an outward act. It's an inward change. God's answer to the problem of sin is not you forcing yourself to do good. God's answer to the problem of sin is not to perform some religious ritual. God's answer to sin is, that you ha- is not that you have some head knowledge that he has paid for the sin. God's answer to sin is found in Romans 3.24. They are justified fe- freely by what? His grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. They are justified freely by his grace through the redemption that is in Jesus Christ. Now, I believe that God intentionally put big vocab words there because he wants us to dive into them and understand them as his children. He doesn't want us to overlook them. He doesn't want us to say, well, that does, I'm not quite sure what that means, so I'm just going to pass it over. He has given us words that are powerful, meaningful, inspirational words that change everything that he desires for us to know and to understand. And so this morning, as we look at this verse, first we need to understand what does justified mean? What does it mean to be justified before God? One of the things I was taught as a, as a pastor, as an up-and-coming pastor through seminary and through listening to good teaching was that justified is believing as just as if I never sinned. Just as if I never sinned. Now, if you came in, you got a sermon-based study. If you want to write this down, this is really important. You are justified with God because when Christ died on the cross for your sins and he paid for that penalty, it is just as if you have never sinned. You have been justified. You are set free by his act on the cross. Justification. I am justly to stand before a just God and I become justified because of what Christ has done for me and what I have received. Grace. An acronym for grace can be God's riches at Christ's expense. God's riches at Christ's expense. Christ paid for you on the cross. And another way to think of grace, grace is getting what you don't deserve. Grace is getting what you don't deserve. The beauty of this picture is, I'm a sinner, you're a sinner. We are lost and separated from a wonderful God. But he so loves us, that he comes and dies to offer us grace. Something I didn't deserve. He didn't yet. There was nothing that was written that said that God must come and die for my sins. There's nothing that said that God had to love us as his created being. We rebelled against him. I rebel against God in my life. He has, he has no, there's nothing that says he has to come and save me from that. He willfully chooses to come and to pay the price so that I may be part of his family and know him. 
That grace is for us, but it is something that we get that we did not deserve. There's nothing in your life, no outward uh, action, no intellect that allows you to be right with God. It is only by his grace that he has set us free. And then redemption. Jesus pays your ransom. How many of you feel and you've sensed in your life that sin has been holding you down? Sin has distorted your life. It has ruined relationships. It has done things in your career. It has done things to your health. It has done things to your finances. And it ties you down and holds you down and brings pain and anxiety and stress and all of these things. When you recognize at the core of all these things in your life that you hate is sin, and then you recognize that I have been redeemed. So I'm a broken vessel. I'm a broken person. We're all broken people. And Christ sees us and he says, I'm going to redeem that. I'm going to pay for that and I'm going to redeem it and I'm going to make it beautiful. I'm going to make you beautiful. I'm going to start healing that stuff. I'm going to start working in your life in a new way. I'm going to start giving you new passions, new desires. I'm going to start filling your heart with joy instead of anxiety. I'm going to start filling your life with peace that passes all understanding. Because I'm redeeming you. I'm preparing you for when you come home. Some of you have redeemed cars. You've seen a car, an older car from the 40s, 50s, 60s, and, and you, you bought it, and it was a piece of junk, and then you redeemed it, and now everybody wants it, and they'll buy, spend big money on it. Some of you redeem homes. Some of you redeem uh, artwork. You know that it starts broken. It starts messy. It starts with very little value, and then the one that redeems it brings the value back, actually gives it value, and that is exactly what God is doing in our lives. He's redeeming every single one of us that are his children. He's redeeming us. He is paying our ransom, and he is reestablishing that, that, that thing that he created you to be, the purpose he put you on earth for. He's redeeming it, and he wants us to understand that, that that's not an outward act, and that is not an intellectual knowledge, but is a faith truth that's within your heart and soul. Verse 25 says, God presented him at the mercy seat by his blood through faith to demonstrate his righteousness. Because in his, because in his restraint, God passed over the sin previously committed. God presented him to demonstrate his righteousness at this present time so that he would be just and justified, the one who has faith in Christ. This morning, if you were to go back 2,000 years and go to the holy place, go to Israel, go to the temple, and, and once a year, uh, the high priest was able to go into the holy of holies, and there you would have the ark, and on the top of the ark, you would see two golden angels, and on it was called, uh, we would see would be the, the, the place where God would come and Christ's blood would be sprinkled in, a rec in the... At the mercy seat, the high priest would come and sprinkle the blood of the lamb. And he would sprinkle the blood of the lamb onto the mercy seat. And that would cover the sins. It would tone for the sins of all the people. And here God is saying that Christ is, his blood has been shed and placed upon the mercy seat for you and for me. That that mercy seat is the, the righteousness of our past has now been done and the righteousness of our present is happening. The mercy seat. You know, the beautiful thing is grace is getting what I don't deserve. You know what mercy is? Not getting what I do deserve. Not getting what I do deserve. 
Mercy is when God says, I'm going to give you something even though you don't deserve it, and I'm not going to give you what you do deserve. And this is a faith that you allow to be deep within your heart. It's a faith that goes deep into your soul, and it gives you victory, and it gives you hope. My prayer for you this morning is that you would know what it is to have your sins placed upon the mercy seat. I know what it's like to grow up and think that God is mad at you. I know what it's like to grow up and think that God is judging everything you do and he's always disappointed. I know what that feeling is like to always feel like you have to measure up and be something. And you don't sense mercy. You sense judgment. And do you know that that God has no desire for me to live into that place? He wants me to be freed from that. He wants me to know that he is a merciful, loving God and that he has taken my sin, my past, present, and future sin, and he has placed it on the mercy seat. And he says, I give you something you don't deserve because I love you. I don't give you something you do deserve because I love you. This is how I've demonstrated. This is how I've shown to the world that I love you, that I have covered your sin. I have paid the price. And it's not something to be argued. It is something to be shared. You see, in all of this, we don't get to come from a point of superiority. I don't get to come to you and say this morning, look at me, I did something special. Look at me, I'm somehow better than others. I can't do that. Because I was a broken person that what I should have got was horrible. What I didn't get would have kept me from God forever. And yet in his grace and his love and his mercy and his revelation, he has given life. And he offers it to every person. And so let's, let's consider then the next opportunity you have that arises where spiritual conversation comes up. What then should we do in those situations? How should I respond to someone who is angry, someone who doesn't believe in God? They don't believe God exists. They believe the Bible is a lie. They believe all of this is mythology. How should I approach that? What if someone wants to warp the words of God or misuse the words of God for their own gain? How should I deal with that? I believe from this passage and how Paul deals with the the Jews and the Gentiles of his time, we must realize that that person is made in the image of God. And that I want the absolute best for that person. And that means I need to pray for them. I need to have a humility to myself. And I need to share the truth in love. And that everything I say needs to point them to a place that this is what's best for you. Do you know what I've found is the most um, helpful tool when I talk to someone? Is stopping the conversation and saying, look, I actually want the best for you. Did you know, this is the best thing I know. When it comes to the best for you and your life and what there is, this is all I know to offer you. And so I don't want to, if you don't believe, I'm not here to argue. I'm just here to share. Because I really believe the enemy would love it if Christians argued their faith instead of sharing their faith. I think the enemy would love if we were just known as argumentative people that want to argue people into heaven. You know, we're not the lawyers. We're not the prosecutors when it comes to the eternal courtroom. We're the witnesses. I'm a witness of the grace of God that even though I should get none of what he gives me, I know that it is mine. I know that he is merciful and he is, he is righteous and he is gracious with me and that I am justified. 
I'm justified that if I was to die this moment, I know that he would receive me into his home eternally. Because not of my justice, not because I am justified on my good works or some outward thing that I did. I'm not justified because I was baptized or because I know God's word. I'm justified because there was a place in my life where I said, I am no longer Lord of my life. I confess that as sin. I confess all of my sin and I repent and I believe and I want to receive your Holy Spirit. And your Holy Spirit is what is to guide me the rest of my life. And that is the point of change. And I pray that that has been a change in your life. And so when it comes to this issue of how do we have discussions with people we love, how do we deal with these arguments that arise, I would give you four things this morning, practical applications as we go. First, always choose humility. Always consider, am I thinking myself better than this person? Do I truly care about them as a person, as a person made in the image of God, that God formed them in their mother's womb, that God put them in my life at this place at this time? What does God, how, how does he want me to interact? What does he put me in this place to do? Even if that person is grumpy and angry and the hardest person to ever get along with, and th there's something that drives you nuts, you're still to live in humility and to be patient. Number two, I would say let's as a church make a commitment we're not going to argue. If it starts to sound and look like an argument, let's just call it quits. Let's just stop. Let's just say, hey, this is looking a lot like an argument. Let's agree to disagree. Let's move on. I love you. I don't want this to be held between us that we can't have a healthy relationship. Let's not argue. Let's not argue. Third, focus on the gospel. Don't focus on your goodness or someone you know's goodness. Focus on Christ's goodness. Point everyone to the only answer that there really is. Point to the death, burial, resurrection of Christ. And then if you can, if the opportunity arises, share what God's doing in your life. Give a testimony. Listen to what they say and say, you know what? This is how God's working in my life. This is what God's doing in my heart. This is how God has moved in my situation. I know what it's like not to feel mercy, and now I feel mercy. I know what it's like to not feel grace, but now I know grace. I know what it's like to prove to everyone on the outside that everything's okay, but on the inside, everything's broken. I know what that's like, but coming to Christ, all that changes. There's, there's something that happens within you through the power of the Holy Spirit that transforms who you are. And he begins to justify and he begins to redeem you and make you into the person he wants you to be. Romans 10.9, it gives us a clear picture of what this is all about. If you confess with your mouth, it's something that you believe. If you're saying it, you should believe it. Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead. You will be saved. One believes with the heart, resulting in righteousness. And one confesses with the mouth, resulting in salvation. See, it's more than an outward act. It's more than convincing everyone. It's more than me convincing you. It's in the heart. It's who I am on the inside. It's who the real person is that matters to God. He would rather us not have all the fake outward appearance of knowing him and truly know him than to have nothing in our hearts. And so today, what is he saying to you? How is he speaking to you? How is he encouraging you? How is he challenging you? What is he saying to your spirit today? Let's allow him to do his work.